Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network This week we bring you the second in a two-part report On United Nations talks that began in February in Geneva Their aim is to pave the way to a global ban on nuclear weapons The only weapons of mass destruction not yet prohibited under international law In last week's program, we heard that the overwhelming majority of nations support a ban, but a few dozen, Australia included, stand in the way. Spoken by Tim Wright from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We see that they are in place in certain non-nuclear weapon states policies that run counter to the goal of achieving and maintaining a nuclear weapon-free world. This is Zambia illuminating a problem that has often gone unnoticed and unchallenged in meetings of the Non-Proliferation Treaty or the Conference on Disarmament, a problem that is indeed central to understanding both the rationale behind and resistance to a nuclear weapon ban treaty. These policies and practices demonstrate the gaping holes in the current legal regime governing nuclear weapons. So what exactly are the policies and practices to which Zambia refers? My colleague Beatrice Finn provided the working group with a list. For example, there are non-nuclear weapon states that are hosting nuclear weapons on their territory or states that are participating in nuclear war planning. There are non-nuclear weapon states that are training nationals to deliver nuclear weapons or facilitating intelligence gathering for nuclear targeting. There are non-nuclear weapon states that are claiming protection from an ally's nuclear weapons or are discouraging an ally from pursuing disarmament or reduction of the role of nuclear weapons in security doctrines. There are non-nuclear weapon states allowing nuclear armed ships to enter waters, nuclear armed aircraft to enter their airspace and nuclear weapons to transit through their territory. There are also non-nuclear weapon states that are contributing to nuclear weapon modernization programs, financing nuclear weapons producing companies. And the list went on. A ban treaty, she said, should prohibit all such activities, for they heighten the risk of nuclear weapon use and hamper disarmament. And it is because of these activities that certain nations, not possessing nuclear weapons, argued against a ban. Mr President, to state it clearly... We do not think that this forum should be a predetermined vector to bring about the negotiation of a ban on nuclear weapons. That was Belgium, a nation guilty of several of the aforementioned offences, including hosting nuclear weapons on its territory. But seldom are the true reasons for a nation's objection to a ban clearly articulated. Instead, we hear vague concerns. A ban would undermine security a ban would be ineffective. But Belgium and other nations that believe passionately in the need for nuclear weapons do have an alternative plan for eliminating them, it seems. I have the honour to introduce formally a paper on behalf of 18 states. It outlines a progressive approach to advancing a world free of nuclear weapons. This is Australia, and by progressive, one can assume that it means happening gradually or in stages. Belgium is one of the 18 co-sponsoring states. The paper is a clarion call for action in relation to both effective practical as well as legal measures. A clarion call, not so much. Its introductory paragraph states that there are no quick fixes. 
that security concerns cannot be brushed aside. The tone overall is negative, and the ideas rehashed from a paper submitted three years earlier. Japan, another of the co-sponsors, said that this approach would provide a shortcut to elimination, without being presumably a quick fix. This approach seems to be a detour, but actually we believe this is a shortcut to achieve the final goal. Others, such as Egypt, were less excited about the paper. We believe most of the effective measures mentioned in this paper are non-proliferation tools. That is, measures to stop the spread of nuclear weapons to other nations or the build-up of existing arsenals. I would be interested to know how exactly these measures contribute directly to nuclear disarmament. The paper describes what is known as the building blocks approach, formerly called the step-by-step approach, and sometimes also the full-spectrum approach, and now it seems also the progressive approach. Most former advocates of the step-by-step process have abandoned that terminology because of its fixation with linear progression. This has been subsumed by most, if not all, of its past advocates into the concept of building blocks. Nevertheless, to deny a link between the two ideas would be disingenuous on my part. Australia objected to Austria's apparent suggestion in another paper that those nations advocating the building blocks or step-by-step approach are in fact intent on maintaining a nuclear weapon-based security system. We would contend that that is indeed not the principle and the basis behind the building blocks approach. Several delegations wondered aloud whether a treaty banning nuclear weapons could be considered part of the building blocks approach. We believe that from the strategic and practical point of view, a prohibition treaty can be one of the building blocks. That was Costa Rica. South Africa too saw the ban as compatible with the building blocks approach. A ban treaty could serve as an effective interim measure, building block or as one of the steps towards the achievement of a world free of nuclear weapons. Their logic was unassailable even for several NATO members though they said a ban should be considered only in the final stages, when elimination is imminent. For us, engaging in negotiations on a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons can only come as a final building block in order to guarantee a nuclear weapons-free world. That was Belgium, and this is the Netherlands. The Netherlands is not against the ban. We see it as an important and final element towards a world without nuclear weapons, where nuclear weapons do no longer fulfil a function in the security of states. Australia's position appeared to be the most extreme of all. It could only entertain the possibility of a prohibition on nuclear weapons after nuclear weapons had been eliminated. This extraordinary stance dumbfounded its neighbour New Zealand. I've heard some recent suggestion that while a legally binding prohibition may be necessary for maintaining a nuclear weapon-free world, it is not in fact necessary in order to attain one. However, no clear explanation for why, as a matter of international law, this might be the case has yet been put forward. When a panellist from the British Policy Institute Chatham House mistakenly described New Zealand as an endorser of the step-by-step approach, the proudly nuclear-free nation issued a correction. 
pretty explicitly I was questioning the value of step-by-step for getting anywhere substantive on nuclear disarmament. Please don't take me as an endorser um, of the step-by-step. One of Australia's chief concerns about a ban on nuclear weapons is that it would somehow erode the Non-Proliferation Treaty, although that treaty specifically requires nations to pursue effective measures for nuclear disarmament. And its fragility stems largely from a failure to do so. When prompted to explain its concern, Australia offered a tortuous answer. I note that there are indeed um, some inconsistencies in saying it in the same breath that a banned treaty in one sense is uh, uh, ineffectual and then secondly at the same time saying it, it could be dangerous. I think the point that may have been um, overlooked and, and perhaps I should rephrase it is that uh, whilst there is clearly a, uh, already an obligation on non-nuclear weapon states uh, not to have nuclear weapons, um, the, uh, there is uh, still a, um, a, the importance um, that we have a, an approach where um, there is uh, an understanding that you have a, um, uh, for instance, let me phrase it this way, uh, my contention would be uh, that you have the MPT itself uh, potentially put at some uh, element of risk in the context that uh, some states would see uh, the priority going to a banned treaty rather than uh, prioritising MPT obligations. So I think the, the question we need to address is really if the, the, a banned treaty itself may not necessarily progress us substantially, the reverberations on existing disarmament architecture um, is, is the question, the point that we're trying to make. New Zealand rejected this claim unreservedly and concisely. A new legal instrument putting in place a prohibition on nuclear weapons would in no way undermine or displace the ongoing legal obligations arising from the NPT, but would indeed strengthen them. But Germany seemed doubtful. How would a ban go beyond the existing nuclear taboo established by the Non-Proliferation Treaty, it asked. If it's joined only by non-nuclear weapon states, it's hard to see how it provides benefits beyond the prohibition already enshrined in the NPT or in the various nuclear weapons-free zones. One specific example is it would compel Germany to remove the nuclear weapons from its Bushel airbase. And depending on the scope, it might also forbid Germany from exporting any more of its nuclear-capable submarines to Israel. No doubt the taboo against nuclear weapons could be strengthened. Ireland perhaps provided the most eloquent case for moving beyond the gradualist approach that Germany, Australia and co. espouse. The problem is, we all know what the steps are, but no one is taking any. 
We all know what the building blocks are, but nothing is being built. Clearly, a fresh approach is required. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri land and broadcast all across these stolen lands we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. The overwhelming majority of nations neither possess nuclear weapons nor claim protection from an ally's nuclear weapons. They are parties to the Non-Proliferation Treaty in good standing. Many nations challenged adherence to nuclear deterrence theory, which not only undermines disarmament efforts, but also, they said, incites proliferation. People are still ascribing an obsolete security dimension to nuclear weapons. This is Egypt. If these weapons have a security validity that drives states to try to acquire them, whether directly by development or indirectly, like through nuclear sharing, then why that right is denied to the rest of the international community? If these weapons are really the weapons of peace, then all states should have the right to have them. Needless to say, this assumption represents a coup de grace to the entire non-proliferation regime. Brazil echoed those concerns. In our view, the existence of nuclear weapons and the fact that many states rely on nuclear umbrellas provided by their allied nuclear-armed states are key factors of instability and insecurity in the world. Nuclear weapons are not a guarantor of international security. Their existence diminishes the security of all states, including those who possess them. We agree that every state has the duty to provide security for its citizens. However, this security cannot be based on weapons of mass destruction. As long as nuclear weapons are portrayed by some countries as the ultimate tool for their defense, it will obviously seem logical for other countries to develop them. One cannot be both for the elimination of nuclear weapons and for indefinite reliance on nuclear weapons in security doctrines, Mexico stated. It is absolutely incompatible. And that has become evident precisely as a result of the humanitarian initiative. In our view, you are either for eliminating nuclear weapons or not. You are either for collective security or for the security of a few. There is no middle ground anymore. Canada seemed dismayed that some nations had been so brash as to question its support for nuclear weapons. Australia predictably chimed in too. It isn't a zero-sum game, uh, and we do see there a, um, a compatibility between uh, working to eliminate uh, and progress nuclear disarmament, um, whilst at the same time recognising we have to deal with the situation where there are nuclear weapons and there are security uh, hotspots that certain countries are dealing with although it confessed that Oceania is not one such hotspot. All of these security-based arguments for retaining nuclear weapons raised quite fundamental questions. Just how committed are these nations to fulfilling their obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty? Do they regard the elimination of nuclear weapons as a project for some other century? What price might we all pay if they continue to defer action. We often hear the phrase, bearing in mind the wider security situation. Well, let us bear it in mind. 
Ireland alluded to the potential consequences of continued inaction. The emergence of threats from new non-state actors and more recently the growing threat of cyber terrorism only makes it even more necessary to rid the world of the last of the unprohibited weapons of mass destruction. Do we really want to wait till someone develops the capacity for a cyber attack on nuclear launch mechanisms? Do we really believe that the deterrence argument will work against today's greatest threats? The final two days of the February session focused on improving transparency with respect to nuclear weapons and reducing the risks of detonations, whether by accident or design. Those risks, according to Ireland, are far greater than many had previously imagined. We would be naive, idealistic and, I would argue, arrogant to assume that humanity, with all our flaws, failings and weaknesses, can retain nuclear weapons and yet completely avoid accidents and out-of-control incidents. Nations that possess nuclear weapons, Ireland said, must be more honest with their citizens and with the rest of the world about these risks. Global climate change may be the greatest long-term risk to the survival of the planet, and everyone on it, but the nuclear risk is actually the more immediate one as it could happen tomorrow, and if so, in an instant. And while a single accidental nuclear detonation might not lead to nuclear winter or the end of the world, it would kill vast numbers and leave large uninhabitable areas with consequent impacts on environment, health, food production and movement of people. The International Committee of the Red Cross warned that the risks of nuclear weapon use are only increasing. Recent studies and testimonies have highlighted the growing risk of an accidental, mistaken, unauthorized or intentional nuclear weapon detonation. The views of many experts is that these risks are increasing. The former U.S. Secretary of Defense William Perry recently estimated that the risk of a nuclear catastrophe is greater than it was during the Cold War and is rising. Australia ventured to answer Mexico's question about steps it has taken to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in its security doctrines. Australia, for instance, has its own domestic legislation outlawing nuclear weapons. Um, I know that uh, that's not something that uh, all states are in a position to do, but certainly we would hold that as uh, one way, a modest way, that we have uh, worked at uh, uh, progressing our obligation. That legislation was enacted in 1986 and is riddled with loopholes. Nuclear-armed warships and aircraft may visit Australia, and the notion of a nuclear umbrella, of course, remains intact. Throughout the week, Australia and other nations in nuclear alliances had been on the back foot, faring rather poorly in many of the debates. With every passing day, their arguments against change became ever flimsier. As nations subscribing to the humanitarian pledge meticulously picked them apart. I think we need to be careful. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. An expression not typically heard in diplomatic forums. For Australia and other nations standing on the wrong side of history, 
the working group had charted uncomfortable territory. And so it said... We shouldn't be undermining the CD and putting all our energies into the open-ended working group. But for most nations, this forum, in contrast to the stale Conference on Disarmament, had proven fresh and fruitful. The February session had come to an end. The proposal for a nuclear weapon ban treaty was now on the table, and the duplicitous positions of nuclear alliance nations had been laid bare for all to see, their objections to a ban roundly rebutted. I asked my colleagues for their impressions of the debate. This is Daniel Hergster, our network coordinator. We're very pleased with what's happened so far. Ban treaty is really what we're talking about here. There's other things that are that pop up, like a, the idea of a framework uh, convention and the building blocks approach, which comes from the umbrella states. But actually what's kind of under the surface and out there in, in everyone's minds is the idea of a ban treaty, which is where this is going. I can, of course, will be at the next sessions of the working group in May and yep. August. Can you explain what's in store? ICANN will be having a campaigners meeting on April 30th and May 1st, which is the weekend before the second session gets started. And it's going to be a kind of an opportunity for ICANN campaigners from across the world to get together and to, to plot the way forward and to strategize about what's to come. And ultimately, what do you hope that the working group will achieve? We'd really certainly hope for a negotiation process to kick off quite soon after the open-ended working group uh, completes its work in August. Beatrice Finn, our executive director, was similarly upbeat. I think we've had a really great week with lots of in-depth discussions about a banned treaty. And for the first time ever, governments have really talked about the details of the treaty, about what kind of elements they would like to see in a future treaty and what exactly should be prohibited. And I think this is really setting up well for an excellent session in May where we hope the governments will agree to start negotiations. And in May we're going to bring campaigners from all over the world and really push governments into banning nuclear weapons. I spoke also to Richard Lenane, the Chief Inflammatory Officer of Wildfire, a Geneva-based organisation that works to expose hypocrisy and doublethink in disarmament diplomacy. A former Australian diplomat and UN disarmament official, he is perhaps an unlikely agitator. Do you sense, having listened to the debates this week, that there is an appetite for something new? I think the debate this week has shown that there very definitely is an appetite for something new and that this appetite is spreading uh, to more and more countries. And the encouraging thing about the discussion has been a number of delegations now ready to talk in a bit more detail about what something new might be. And also the idea that, you know, you can't just stand still or keep doing the same old thing. You're going to have to try something and that will probably have to be without the involvement of the the states with nuclear weapons. So that realisation, which I think is is crucial, is, is also spreading. And that was in evidence this week as well. I asked him about the main points of disagreement in the debate and the basis of that disagreement. 
because none of the states with nuclear weapons are there, it's brought some of the other differences to the fore and also some of the motivations that are sometimes not very clear when the, the nuclear-armed states are around. And the most interesting feature, I think, is what I call the nuclear weasel states, that is, non-nuclear weapon states that are members of the NPT. So possession for them of nuclear weapons is, is already illegal. But they are members of alliances with, for example, the United States or another nuclear weapons power, and so they depend on nuclear weapons for, for their security, I mean, quite explicitly. And because the nuclear armed states were not present during the, the open-ended working group uh, this week, it's really these weasel states, these uh, alliance states, who are having to do the, the work of defending the status quo or defending the, the legitimacy of nuclear weapons. And that, I think, makes them very uncomfortable because on the one hand, as non-nuclear weapon states, parties to the NPT, they're supposed to be already free of nuclear weapons and, and really pushing for a nuclear weapon-free world. On the other hand, they're defending the interests of their alliance partners who are not present to defend them themselves. There are two more sessions of the working group later this year. What are your overall hopes well, my overall hope is that by the end of the working group, there'll be a broad coalition of states who either in the report of the working group or through some independent mechanism will just declare that they have decided that the way forward is to negotiate a treaty banning nuclear weapons and they're ready to do that right now, whether that's through the United Nations or through some outside process. was Richard Lenane, Chief Inflammatory Officer of Wildfire, speaking to me at the conclusion of the February session. No doubt significant progress had been made, but much work remains to be done, as indeed Australia noted. There is still a very clear lack of clarity as to what a ban treaty would consist of. We need to hear from its advocates what they mean by a ban treaty. And that, dear listener, sounds like a challenge. This podcast was written and spoken by Tim Wright for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. Recordings of the working group were courtesy of the United Nations. Special thanks to Reaching Critical Will and Wildfire. To join the movement to ban nuclear weapons, visit our website, icanw.org, and please consider making a one-time or monthly donation. This has been The Radioactive Show, produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. You can contact us by emailing radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for another healthy dose of anti-nuclear and peace news. We'll go out now with Deadly Dub by Monkey Mark.
Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR, 